Let's start off, if my slides move, I'm hoping, with a pop quiz. I know you weren't expecting the test this morning. It's, it's going to be okay. I'm going to give you a quote, and then I just want you to shout out at me, what is the context of what you hear? So if the quote was, play ball, baseball, that's right. Yeah, you're at a baseball game. So. Things are not quite, all right. This is Joe Johnson reporting to you live from a news station. Yeah, it is some sort of news broadcast, a reporter. Yeah, really, really general. All right, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. Wedding, Wedding yeah. <laughs> nice job. <laughs> I've never heard those words at a funeral, and I told my wife, like, no. But maybe two of you mentioned it. I'm not sure. Take three cups of flour, one teaspoon of salt. Uh, yeah. A cooking show, a recipe, baking, all of that. All right. Once upon a time? Fairy tales. All right. How about this one? Scene one. A play. All right. Just for pure bragging rights, can anyone tell me what play this is? Macbeth. I thought it was Hamlet. All right, Paul, Paul wins. I would not have been able to answer it. Yeah, this is Hamlet by William Shakespeare because it's out of copyright, so I could just put it up there and not have to worry. Yeah, it's a play. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It's an epistle. It's a New Testament letter. I want to begin with these quotes because I want to make a point this morning that context is king. If you are missing some crucial bits of information, you will not understand what is being presented to you. For instance, if you are sitting down at your, on your couch at home watching the six o'clock news and someone comes on saying, this is Joe Johnston reporting to you live from, you're going to interpret that information far differently than if you are sitting in a movie theater having just paid like $300 to watch a movie and on the screen in front of you, someone comes up saying, this is Joe Johnston reporting to you live. It's the exact same phrase, and we interpret it very differently because of the context. You know, how do we read? This is going to, oh, what's going on with my clicker? I'm sorry. I'm trying to go back. It's not working. Go back to the Macbeth play. How do we read a play? What are we supposed to do with that? Are you a high school English student who is being force-fed the finer points of Western literature? Or are you an acting troupe who's going to try to perform Shakespeare on a stage in a park, you know, in a school gymnasium? The way that you interact with this text will be very, very different. So we're going to come to the word church. It means the called out ones, a gathering? Is it, is it a people? Is it a place? What is it? What do we do with it? It has a lot of connotations, and what context do we view it in? And that matters. See, when we gather on Sunday mornings, what is it that we're doing? When we open our, our Bibles and we read, what are we doing? What is the point 
of what we're reading. Is the goal that at the end of this six-month series on church, I can hand you a written evaluation and you will know whether the answer is A, B, C, or D? Is the goal to teach you propositional truth where I can make a statement about God or Jesus and you all sit there and you will smile and you'll go, I believe that too. (sighs) Or is the goal that like actors producing a play, we would actually embody and inhabit a text to put a production on for the sake of a watching world. And that is the metaphor I want to proceed with this morning. That the idea that the scriptures will be our script, our life together will be our performance. This isn't something I I came up with on my own. I'm reading a book called The Drama of Doctrine and a smart guy with the last name Van Hooser says this. He says, the church is a company of players gathered together to stage scenes of the kingdom of God for the sake of a watching world. The direction of doctrine Thus enables us as individuals and as a church to render the gospel public by leading lives in creative imitation of Christ. I don't know if that spoke to your heart the way it did mine. But he says, the right teaching about Jesus is like stage directions that guides the actors into faithfully representing Jesus for the sake of a watching world. And that's how I want to engage with Paul's letters. See, Paul, he had this idea that his letters should change the way that we live together. In Ephesians 4, he writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In the next letter, Philippians, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Or in Colossians, I pray that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Or in Thessalonians, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. So we almost had a series called Church, Walking Worthy of the Gospel. But we shifted it a little bit to instead read Church, Imitating Christ Together. This idea that by the end of the series, we would know who we are as a people of God and what in the world we're supposed to do about it that our life together would imitate Christ, that we would show to the world by the words we speak and the deeds we perform the kingdom of God about who God is and what he's like and what he has done for the world in Jesus Christ and the difference that that makes. So that's the plan for the next six months. Um, There's bookmarks in the back if you don't know where we're going. But let's return to this idea that context is king. And if you don't understand what's going on, you're going to miss it. So I'd like to tell you a story about a morning at the Hootons. Uh, True story happened this week. If you don't know my personal context, my wife and I have a baby who is not quite two months old. So sleep is a rare commodity in the Hooton household. And so I woke up this particular morning, uh, my alarm went off, and my first thought was just like, oh no. And I hit snooze. And then like a minute later, it's going off again. I'm like, no, this is bad. I can't sleep in because I have someone coming to our apartment to fix something from the uh, apartment management. So I'm not allowed to sleep 
sleep in. So with a bad attitude and a grumpy face, I climb out of bed and proceed to begin my morning. I have three older kids and they are fine with mornings. They've gotten their night's sleep and they are chip and cheery and ready to go. And I'm grumbling around the kitchen. And I'm trying to help my wife to get as much sleep as possible. And she finally lets me know that she's awake by calling me on the cell phone because I'm in the kitchen and she's in the bedroom. And she's like, good morning. And I said, good morning. She goes, how are you? And I'm like, I am exhausted. I am so, so tired. And she goes, why? I don't know. I'm just tired. That's, I'm just exhausted. What's the problem? She's like, well, I, I don't understand. This was not the, the statement I was expecting to be challenged on this morning. So I go and talk to her. I'm like, I, I don't know why. Like, what's, I'm, just, I'm so tired. She's like, didn't you get like, a lot of sleep last night? I'm like, yeah, like more than normal, but I'm, I'm exhausted. She's like, oh, this doesn't make any sense. I'm like, why are you getting angry about the fact that I'm tired? And, you know, in true Jordan fashion, I, I just walk out of the, the room. And uh, then my crying wife follows me. And then she lets me in on some context that I was missing because this is not a normal conversation for us. And she says, you know, last night at 11 o'clock when I told you that, you know, you'd probably be able to rest for 10 minutes and then if the baby needed more help falling asleep, you'd be on. I'm like, yeah. She goes, I didn't wake you up. Instead, I stayed up for the next hour helping her baby fall asleep so that you could sleep. And then not only was I up regularly feeding the baby at night, but then at 6 a.m. when he wouldn't settle, instead of waking you up, I stayed up so that you could sleep. So you just got nine hours of straight sleep, which is, you know, she's not saying this, but it's like three times longer than any solid stretch of sleep that she's gotten in the last two months. And so when she's calling me and she says, how are you feeling this morning? She's really asking, did you appreciate the gift? that I worked and sacrificed long and hard to give you. And I responded, I'm so tired. I'm just exhausted. Which kind of came across like, foo on your gift. It meant nothing. Yeah. um, See, had I known any idea of what had been given so that I could get the sleep I got, let's imagine that I would respond very, very differently to it. See, Paul this morning is writing to us. He's writing to a church in Ephesus and the churches around it. And he begins his letter, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So let's get a little context. Um, This is a standard, you know, ancient letter format. These days we would just go, you know, dear, fill in the blank, whatever it is you wanted to say, sincerely, your name. Like that's how we write letters. Back in the day, they did it differently. They had name of sender, name of recipients, greetings, or a blessing. Uh, Then traditionally, a prayer of of thanksgiving or blessing. I give thanks to God for you, such and such. And then you have the main body of the text, which is divided between fancy words, exposition and exhortation. It just means teaching and urging, things to know, things to do. And when you're reading Paul, he likes to actually segment those off. So here's all the stuff you need to know, and now here's what to do about it. And then he ends with some sort of travel log and then a closing, you know, blessing, you know, farewell. And that's how they write letters. I was going to put this on your handout, but I didn't have enough room. You have something else on the handouts um, by your chairs, um, but I'll try to include this 
next week. Because this is a handy bit of information to have. Because if something is out of the ordinary from what you would normally expect, you know to pay attention. If you're reading the letter to Galatians and Paul says, you know, Paul, an apostle, you know, not by man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God our Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, etc. And then he goes, I'm astonished by you. He just skips that whole prayer of thanksgiving because the apostle is ticked at them. He's really, really angry. He's not thankful at all right now. He's going to get in their face like, oh, okay, that's, that's important. But Ephesians is a little bit different. Name of sender, Paul. Name of recipients to the saints in Ephesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you, we have a whopper of a prayer of thanksgiving and blessing. Hey, like, goes the rest of chapter one and sort of seamlessly just keeps going to the body of the text. Uh, and Ephesians can be divided into basically first three chapters. Paul wants us to know stuff about Jesus and about who we are in him. And then chapters four through six, he tells us, and now here is what that means for you. And it can close us with the travelogue. You know, Tychicus will come and let you know how I'm doing. And then a final closing blessing. Standard letter format and something worth knowing because we're going to be hitting several of Paul's letters through the series. But let's begin this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise, Paul begins, praise, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy, there's that word again, and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, in whom we also were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And that's gonna be the reading for today. And Paul is excited, and the rest of us are somewhat glassy-eyed. Because that sounded really great, but what did you just say? I don't even know. And to quote our dear beloved brother, the Apostle Peter, Paul is hard to understand. Because what I'm told is, in Greek, this happens to be the longest single sentence 
in the New Testament. It is one big, long, rambling sentence that is all about how much God has given us in Jesus Christ, and Paul just can't stop himself. And it's crazy complicated. So, uh, skipping Greek, which I don't speak, we're going to break it down. And I know this is way too small to read, which is why I have it printed in front of you on your handout. And you can mark that thing up as much as you want to. So, a couple things we want to point out. We're just going to break it down. So, it begins with praise, (laughs) main verb of the sentence. We should praise God. And that refrain echoes three times, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. Paul wants us to praise God. Because. Because he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. I mean, he doesn't say every physical blessing. You don't become an instant multimillionaire from turning to Christ, um, despite some people's claims. I'm just I wouldn't be all bad. Like, I don't know. Uh, but no, every spiritual blessing. And when we read in the book of Acts about the church of Ephesus, this is something they really cared about. A whole bunch of Christians in Ephesus, when they turned to Jesus, they brought their magic books and they burned them publicly. And people added up the total and it was like thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars worth of books designed to give you blessings in the spirit realm where angels, demons, other things exist. And now Paul says, no, in Jesus, you have it all. In Jesus, spiritually, you got deep pockets because God has not been stingy with you at all. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. There is nothing you lack. (laughs) And Paul's not done. He says, all right, and God chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Holy, set apart, devoted to some special task, blameless. Like when you appear before the judge of all the earth, you are predestined to have less anxiety and less worthy than when you show up at traffic court. Because when we show up at traffic court, we know we did wrong. And yet the judge of the entire cosmos has ordered that when we show up on judgment day, we will be found blameless in his sight, clean, holy. God chose to adopt us as sons. We have an inheritance. We have redemption through the blood of Jesus, forgiveness of sins. God has lavished us with his grace. Like Paul is just throwing, you know, the entire thesaurus at this sentence. Like all the, you know, extra flowery words he can put into there, he's shoving in. Lavished us with grace, with all wisdom and understanding. God has chosen us. He saved us. He has marked us with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. I like to think of this as In Toy Story, how Andy writes his name on the bottom of Woody's foot, like that's what God has done for every Christian. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He sealed you. He's like, just put his little signature, like you are mine. And this Holy Spirit is just earnest money, really. The first installment of a much larger blessing to come. For all that Paul's talking about, God is just getting started. 
You have only begun to experience the blessings God has in store for you. We should praise God. Now I want to look at pronouns. They're important. And perhaps, you know, just personal confession here. For me, I think this has made the greatest single impact uh, that the book of Ephesians has had in my life. Because I picked up on this when I was 19 going through it. Look at the ones Paul uses. Our, us, 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 we, our. And even when he gets down to verse 13, the word you, turns out English is missing something. English doesn't have a plural you form, unless you're in Texas, in which case we say y'all. But that's what Paul's saying here, you all. And I realized, oh, you mean Paul wasn't writing to help me and Jesus and my Bible? Paul's writing to help us as the people of God. He has this corporate identity in mind. And for a guy who grew up in the far western edge of the, one of the most individualistic countries in the history of the world, that was actually a really good thing to hear. We should bless God. Because God had a good plan. He chose us. He predestined the pleasure of his will with wisdom and understanding, his good pleasure which he purposed. He predestined. He had a plan. This isn't an accident. God's had this in mind since before he made the world. And it's not a local plan either. It's not like, oh, we're, you know, he's got this nice little idea for us here, and then he's got this much bigger thing going on. No, this is a plan that takes place in the heavenly realms. He's going to, he's talking about things in heaven and things on earth, like the entire universe. This isn't God's little plan. This is his giant, universal, big master grand plan for everything we're a part of. And it comes to us in Christ. And Paul's talking about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. This is a Trinitarian purpose to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That's, that's God's big plan. And he let us in on the secret. This is amazing. That what happened with this Jewish guy named Jesus 2,000 years ago in Podunk Nowhere of Nazareth and Galilee and in Jerusalem is the hinge point to God's master plan for everything. And far from being spectators or onlookers, like we are front and center stage in this drama that God is, is putting on. We are part of his plan in Christ. And there's a lot more that Paul's going to say about what it means to be in Christ, and that's coming next week and the week after that, because we are just getting started in the good things that God has done for us. So to, to take a really big sentence and make it into a slightly less big sentence, we should praise God, because he chose to bless us and include us in his triune epic plan for the cosmos, to put everything under Christ's headship. And I don't know, yeah, that's hard to read, but here's it on just black and white. Same, same line. We should praise God because he chose to bless us and include us in his triune epic plan for the cosmos to put everything under Christ's headship or just more simply, praise God for what he's done for us in Christ. 
those would be the blanks on your, uh, your thing if you want to fill it in. Praise God for what he's done for us in Christ. And, you know, it's worth, it's worth reviewing one more time. What have we been blessed with in Christ? Just, you know, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God's not stingy. He has been extravagantly generous with us. We've been chosen to be holy and blameless before God. We've been predestined for adoption as children. We are part of God's family. I was talking to a guy this week who is working with a, um, a nonprofit here in the city of Portland. They're going to be uh, helping to administrate the homeless um, temporary housing shelter that's going in in Menlo Park, uh, park and ride just right across the street. And as we were just walking the neighborhood and talking, he, he said, my personal theory, uh, philosophy that I got from someone else is that the, the primary cause of homelessness is a tragic loss of family. He says, if you and I, like if we lost our jobs, you know, couldn't pay rent, like we have a list of people we can rely on. So people end up on the street, why? Because they have no family. Paul is saying, because of Jesus, you have family. God has made you part of his, his family. And if you are children of God's family, then, then you have a lot more family too because we're actually related to one another. We've been redeemed through Christ's blood. You can come home now. It's all been paid for. That the, all the hurdles that might prevent you from returning to God have been taken care of in Jesus. Like, I have a hard time getting over emotional hurdles just to go back to my wife when we're having a hard time. And because of Christ, the hurdles between me and Almighty God have been taken away. We have been forgiven of our wrongdoings. It wasn't something we did. God just chose to overlook all that. We're halfway. God, God has let us in on his master plan. We get to know his will. You know, there's, there's a president in Russia who has a master plan and the rest of the world is trying to figure out, like, what are you thinking? The God of the universe has let us into his master plan. It's all about Jesus and we're part of it. He's given us an inheritance. He's given us salvation. He's given us the Holy Spirit. God has shown up and come to live inside each one of you. We're going to talk more about what that means later. But this Holy Spirit is the down payment. It's earnest money. It is, it is a promissory note. It is an engagement ring. It is a promise that you are in and you are accepted and you are loved. And this is just the beginning. Just you wait. In Christ, because of Jesus, we have a brand new context. We have everything changed for us. What? Really? Yeah. I mean, if, if hearing that my wife had sacrificed to give me sleep. It wouldn't have changed my circumstances, but it would have changed my attitude a lot. 
I came home <laughs> that night after uh, working, and, and Kara and I, you know, we're, we're going to try to figure this out. Because, you know, we, we now understand why it happened, and we have the emotions now to sort through. And uh, I don't know if this has ever happened in your life, but suffice to say, it didn't go well. And uh, we were trying to put out a fire, and instead we just spread it. And it got bigger. And we got angrier. And it got harder. And finally, like, I'm, I'm just standing there, and my brain is going, this is just too hard. I can't do this. I'm just angry, and I'm frustrated, and it's not working. This was Monday. And then this little voice speaks up in the back of my head, and it goes, hey, Jordan, that's not true. I go, what do you mean that's not true? It says, you've been studying Ephesians. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And I said, shut up. <laughs> it, it, it didn't. It says, you've been chosen to be holy and blameless in God's eyes. First Peter says, you have been given everything you need for life and godliness. That means, Jordan, that God has already given you absolutely everything that you need for this situation. You have all the resources in heaven to overlook your anger and to go make things right with your wife. You have everything that you need. Fine. Context. It's king. What does it what does it matter to a bunch of people who are going through economically hard times, relationally hard times, who are discouraged, who are running the same battles over and over again, who feels like the world is out of control and, and beyond their grasp and that you know, everyone else seems to be moving on and they're stuck in whatever situation they happen to be in. For Paul to write, do you guys have any idea what's true about you? Do you know what God has done for you in Jesus Christ? Might this new context change things for you? Do we dare? Do we dare to believe it? So this morning, I'd like to just challenge you. I've printed it out. You have a copy of it on your phone, most of you, or in a book in your house, but I'd say tape this to your mirror, to your fridge, onto the back of your phone. Like, I don't care where you put it, but put it in a place where you can read it one time a day for a week. Slowly, this is more for myself because I like to read things at like hyperdrive speed. Um, just get it done. No, no, no. Slowly. If all this is true, how does this new context affect my attitude or my actions, my outlook or my, my everythings? And maybe it would be good to pick one thing here. The one thing that is like speaking to you right now. Maybe you're discouraged and lonely and you just need to be reminded that you are now part of God's family. Maybe you feel like you're, you're just not quite being included with everything else and you need to know God has included you and in everything he's doing in Christ. Maybe you're having a hard time because it seems like your past is catching up to you. 
And right now you're just freaking out if even the people closest to you would learn about all the trash that has gone on in your background. And you need to be reminded that in Christ, God has chosen that you would be holy and blameless. That he has given you all the resources you need, not only to be right with him, but then, Paul will say later, to be right with other people. It's a big, long sentence that's easy to get lost in. So maybe pick one. And read it slowly today, and then tomorrow, and then the day after. How might this change things? Because it can. It really can. I shared, I think it was just last week, about um, a guy I talked to several years back, asked, like, how did you end up in the ministry? And he told this crazy story where God got in his face and said, basically, no matter how far you go or how hard you run, I will always be your father. You will always be my son. And so he, he went and he and his wife served um, in a church in, in Southern Oregon for, for decades. And they've retired and they moved over to the East Coast, but their story is not done. You see, his wife has been diagnosed several years back with a terminal illness. I'm going to get it wrong. I think it's called like idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which basically means we don't know why it's here or where it comes from, but event, scar tissue is growing over your lungs, kind of like COVID. You will come to a place where your own body will be unable to get enough oxygen to support your life. And one day, you're just going to suffocate on dry land. And this disease has been taking its toll. She recently went on to hospice. But she's written a blog over the last couple of years called Breathing by Grace. And her reflections, as she lives with the inevitability that one day, as she's just you know, doing something like taking a couple steps, her body will be racked with the inability to get oxygen, and she'll be wondering, will this be the time that I will be unable to catch my breath and she'll die? And in the midst of this terrible, horrible, very bad, no good situation, Jesus is making quite a difference. The hope that disease and death are intruders in this good creation that God has made, that one day they'll be dealt with, means a lot. The truth that because Jesus rose from the dead, those who are in Jesus will also rise means her story isn't done. Even if her body dies and she's buried in a grave, that is just intermission. God's drama will continue. The hope that God has provided her and her husband everything they need to make it through this stage, it's changing their life. It's not easy. (laughs) So far from it. Things are getting real. But there's a context that all of it is taking place in. And it affects their attitudes and their actions and their outlook and, you know, their everythings. And a whole bunch of people are just watching in amazement and wonder. If God has really done all this for us in Christ, Whoa. Whoa. We should praise him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, holy and good God, we thank you for Jesus. Father, Paul is hard to understand. And yet the truths he speaks about 
um, have power to change lives and to shape imaginations. Father, we pray for, for new thoughts this week. We pray for a new reality, a new context, that you would give us a holy imagination to imagine what if these things are true and to believe that they actually are true for us and that that, that knowledge wouldn't leave us to a rested contentment where we go, ah, oh, that's just good truth. But that these, these thoughts and ruminations of our mind would, would impel us to act differently towards those that we're angry with, towards those that we're disappointed with, towards ourselves when we're feeling ashamed um, and so inadequate. God, transform our imagination and let our transformed imaginations change everything. Help us to see Christ together and what you're doing for us in him more and more until the day he returns. We praise you and we will praise you in Jesus' name.